You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. Our Advent series this year is entitled God Revealed. In these four sermons, as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, we are studying key stories from the Old Testament where God shows up and reveals himself to his people. As we welcome Pastor Jonathan to the pulpit to continue our Advent series, uh, let's hear today's scripture re- reading from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My wife, Tracy, and I, we are huge Lou City soccer fans. We're season ticket holders. We go to every game. We're totally into it. Not quite face paint and kilt level, but I am what I call purple suit level committed. I'll show you a picture of this. So I I do have a purple suit that I wear at every, every game or most games because there's nothing quite like the experience of a packed stadium with your team playing great. The excitement, the shared joy, even with strangers, other fans. And those moments, for example, where you have a late game corner kick, where everyone is stamping their feet and yelling and and, and excited, there is really nothing like that kind of experience. You you feel like maybe the whole stadium is going to collapse or explode. And then when number 10, my favorite player, Brian Ownby, goes past the defender and taps the pass to Lancaster and who puts it in the winning goal, that's an amazing experience. But from what I've heard, what we've experienced at Lucidity is absolutely nothing compared to what happens at a major soccer stadium in Europe. If you, if you were to go to a top-level game in, in Italy or England or Spain or Germany, I've heard that it is truly otherworldly with 80,000 fans packed into Wembley Stadium or Signal Iduna Park in Dortmund with nonstop antiphonal singing and flags waving and joy and excitement. The experience is so awesome, it's impossible not to get swept away. And as I was studying our text for today, I couldn't help but think of how those large-scale human experiences, which are pretty rare to have those, but are good for us, how the reason they're good for us is because it's a rare time in our lives when we actually can become free from our self-consciousness because you realize you're part of something bigger than yourself. Those are special experiences, and they do give you a sense of something different. We might even say transcendent. And what we see in our text for today 
is even beyond that. In fact, what happens in Isaiah 6, I would suggest to you, is actually the substance or the reality of which all such experiences we might have on this earth, those rare moments where we're swept away, those are the shadow of what happens in our story. So here we are in our fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and today we are looking at one more text from the Old Testament to see how God reveals himself. And we're doing this because we want to have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, because the scriptures teach that God has revealed himself throughout history, but he's finally and ultimately and most clearly revealed himself in Jesus. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. So today we're gonna look at another stunning story, one about someone who saw God through a vision, the prophet Isaiah. So who was Isaiah? Well, he was a Jewish man who was born in sometime in the 8th century BC, so like in the 700s years before Christ. He lived a long life. He was God's spokesman for many decades in the southern part of Israel. In fact, his prophetic ministry covered four different kings of Judah. And in the Old Testament, we have this long and very famous book called Isaiah that is a record of all the things God told him to say. And... This book of Isaiah is arguably the most important book in the Old Testament for the New Testament. You really can't read very far into the New Testament before you will start to run into allusions and quotes and references to Isaiah all throughout. In fact, in the early church for centuries, the book of Isaiah was called the fifth gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Isaiah was seen as so important that it was called the fifth gospel because in it, what you see in Isaiah's message is a message that is certainly pointing forward to the reality that God is going to send a suffering servant to restore his reign upon the earth, and that we understand to be Jesus. So our verses in Isaiah chapter 6 are the most important moment in Isaiah's life, when God shows up to Moses at a time and calls him to be his witness or his mouthpiece, his prophet. Why did God do that? Because, you see, God's people had a problem. And if you, if you were to read Isaiah, I encourage you to do it. Just start reading through Isaiah. A lot of it will be confusing, but just press through and read it. You'll see in the first five chapters, you'll see the problem is laid out very clearly. If you remember, God called Abraham to be his, the beginning of his people so that he might be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Israel in this time are the descendants of that tribe, of that group of people. And God made it very clear from the beginning that Israel was supposed to be the model and the means for what God is like and for how God deals with the people and for what a people should be like. They were to be the blessing to all the nations, but there is a major problem. Instead of being like God and being God-fearing and loving and honoring to God, his own chosen people were, just like the rest of humanity, just the opposite. Sinful, arrogant, rebellious, not wholehearted in their love toward God and worship of him, constantly ignoring and forgetting God just like us. So I think of it like, imagine that you wanted to have this like Christian youth rock group band that would travel around and like be a good witness and a model to other youth groups all throughout. And it turns out that they're doing heroin and are promiscuous. (laughs) That's basically what Isaiah is about. It's showing, it's God showing up and saying, I am going to bring just judgment and discipline on my own people 
because even though I have called you and blessed you, you have rebelled against me. And so it's a pretty dark book. It's not maybe through much of it, it doesn't feel very encouraging, but always in Isaiah and always from God, there is hope. There is a light shining in this darkness that, as we talked about last week, God is chesed and emet. He is steadfastly loyal and faithful. Despite his people's faithlessness and their rebellion, he continues to promise that he is going to send someone who will be a suffering servant, who will atone for their sins and establish God's reign upon the earth, turn ashes to mourning and weeping into life and wine and joy. And that's what the book of Isaiah is about. And this is where it comes down to chapter six. So let's look at the story and see what happens. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So unexpectedly, Isaiah wasn't seeking this out. Unexpectedly and uncontrollably, God decides to show up to Isaiah in the midst of all of this through a vision. And Isaiah here is reflecting back as he's writing this down, and he tells us that this vision he had from God happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Who was Uzziah? He was a really good king, not perfect. He did some bad things, but he was really a generally a good king in the southern part of Israel, what's called Judah. He reigned for 52 years, and he was a very good administrator, a very good military leader, probably the best king of Judah after the time of Solomon for a long time. And so Isaiah tells us that this time that God showed up in this vision was a time of incredible turmoil and uncertainty because this long-reigning good king had just died. We saw back in October and November, if you remember now, it already feels like a long time ago, but all the tension, all the stress, all the anxiety in our society when we were going through a presidential election. Imagine if we had had a king who reigned for 52 years and you were at a time of transition. We only had a president who reigned for a few years and then There were all kinds of checks and balances. I mean, a president can't really do what a king can do, but a king is completely sovereign, especially in the ancient world. And if you imagine if you had a king that had been ruling for 52 years, you don't know what's gonna happen next because there's nothing worse than having a bad king. So it's a time of uncertainty. It's a time of fear. What's going to happen? And God shows up to Isaiah. And what does Isaiah see? He sees God. He doesn't see God in the full face sense, right? Remember we saw last week, no one has ever seen God except Jesus, but God does regularly accommodate himself. He reveals something about himself to his people when he chooses. In theology, we technically say that God condescends. Now that sounds like that's a very negative word in English now, but to condescend, that means God comes down and and dwells with his people. It means he reveals himself in a way so that we can grasp and understand who he is. So God often condescends. He reveals himself to people like Moses we saw last week, saw his glory, and now here with Isaiah. So what is the way in which God reveals himself to Isaiah? Well, he reveals himself as the true and sovereign and all-powerful, almighty king. 
King Uzziah has just died. And again, in the midst of this, Isaiah is given a vision that there is actually a true king beyond any other earthly king, and that is the Lord himself. Isaiah has this vision that's in the temple, the temple where God meets with his people, and he's given a vision into the inner sanctum, the holy holies, and it's like the veil is pulled back, and instead of seeing the Ark of the Covenant, what he sees there is a throne. It's this combination of the idea that God is meeting with his people in the temple, but it turns out the inner sanctum of the temple is like a throne. It is where God, it's a throne room where God the king is dwelling, and what a throne room it is. Isaiah is standing, or maybe he's prostrate, at the door of this throne room, and he looks up and he sees this enormous throne. First, the only thing I can first think of is like if you walk up to the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. at one end of the, of the area there, this massive you know, version of Abraham Lincoln, this throne. But imagine walking in and this much, even infinitely more massive throne, so large that it says Isaiah can only see like what he sees is the robe, the, the hem of the robe of the king. In other words, God is so high and exalted, he's saying, that is what he sees is really just the edge of the hem of his robe. And it's more than Princess Diana's robe. I mean, it, it is more than the train of any the longest wedding you can imagine. This robe of the king is filling the temple. There's so much material, which is, of course, is an image of God's incredible greatness that Isaiah sees him, not fully, but only even just the edge of his robe, and he sees how high and exalted he is. This is a, you know, an incredible way to describe God's kingship. But that's not all. Isaiah is dumbstruck and awe at seeing this throne with the Lord upon it, but then he realizes he's not alone. That this king, this sovereign, of course, has attendants. He has servants that are themselves absolutely amazing. They're called, the only time in the Bible here, they're called seraphs. They're a kind of angels, seraphs or seraphim, which just means burning ones, probably referring to the fact that they probably looked to Isaiah like some kind of flaming candle or some kind of flame shooting in the air. And if the attendants are this glorious, the implication is how much more is the king himself? And these bright and glorious seraphim are almost indescribable, but Isaiah is able to perceive that they are flying and that they have faces and feet and wings. They use some of their wings to cover their faces because even these perfect, sinless beings cannot behold God clearly. They use some of their wings to cover their feet, which is a sign of humility and obedience, and they also have voices. Turns out this throne room, it's not like the Lincoln Memorial or something else. Turns out this throne room is not silent. It is this place of momentous worship as the seraphim are flying around and singing antiphonally, singing back and forth in a song about God. And look at our text again to see what they say. And it says, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So more than the greatest soccer game experience you can imagine, more than the greatest Taylor Swift concert you can imagine. I'm taking, I'll be taking an offering for both of those experiences, if you'd like, for me. Isaiah is caught up in this overwhelming, 
divine worship service that is so powerful that he can feel the, the ground and the walls shaking around him and it's massively, the temple is filling up with smoke. And notice, this vision is not just this bodily experience. It is a bodily experience. Like someone might say that they you know, met aliens in the, in the desert of Nevada and they just had, saw this light and had this bodily experience. This is more than that. This is saying that he understands something about God. There's a cognitive element to this because of what is being said about God. And you saw it there. It's repeated three times, triply super emphasizing this is true about God. And what does it say about God? That he is holy. Have you been around church for any amount of time? You've probably heard that before, that God is holy. But to quote Inigo Montoya, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> In other words, when you, when you and I hear the word holy, I bet primarily we think of maybe the idea of purity or pure. But the core idea of God being holy is that actually he is, what it means is that he is distinct. He is separate. That's what the word means in Hebrew, distinct or separate or dedicated or even whole, W-H-O-L-E. Pure isn't exactly it. God is pure and righteous, but he's pure and righteous because he's holy. He is whole. He's dedicated. He's distinct. He's separate. He's complete. He's like silver that has nothing else besides silver in it. It is whole, dedicated to being only silver. In fact, in a weird kind of way, the same word that's used here can be used to describe the prophet or the prostitutes of Baal and Asherah. They can be described with the same Hebrew word because they are completely dedicated in all that they are to those idol gods. And of course, they're very different than God, but the idea of holy is actually the idea of dedicated completely. So when the Bible talks about God or anyone else being holy, it's referring to a separation, a dedicatedness, a distinctness. And when this is applied to God and then triply emphasized, what this is saying is that God is holy independent of his creation. He is complete in himself. He is entirely consistent and whole. As the apostle James will later describe it, God doesn't change like shifting shadows because he is complete and consistent and whole in himself. Now, this does mean that God is pure and good completely, but that's a function of God's holiness, his integrity, his distinct integrity. So it's not wrong to think of holiness as meaning pure or clean. But you need to understand that cleanliness is actually a fruit or a byproduct of wholeness. It's like integrity. Like, have you ever thought about the difference between an integer, a whole number, versus fractional? This is who God is. He is whole. So what Isaiah is being shown in this vision through imagery and through words, through both sights and sounds, is that the Lord is high and exalted independent of humanity, sovereign, self-contained, full and beautiful and whole. And this is what we call God's transcendence. God's transcendence. Isaiah sees like he'd never seen before that he is in the presence of a God who is separate and above all. But notice something very important that God is not only revealed to be transcendent, but also eminent. And we'll put those two words on there so you can make sure you understand them. Transcendent and eminent. What does it mean for God also to be eminent? 
It means he is not only separate and above, but also he is present and descended. In fact, did you see what the line says? That the whole earth is full of his glory. God's eminence is the revealing, gracious, condescending of himself in grace to his people. And what is God's glory? Well, if God's holiness refers to his distinctness and separateness, his glory is the manifestation, the gracious giving and revealing of his transcendence to the world, what we can call his eminence. So this is an amazing vision that Isaiah sees, an amazing thing for us to see as well, that God reveals himself is simultaneously above and also revealing himself. He is holy and he is glorious. So how does Isaiah respond to this? Well, he responds like every human who has ever seen even a glimpse of God responds. Look at verse five, he says, "'Woe to me, I cried. "'I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, "'and I live among a people of unclean lips, "'and my eyes have now seen the King, the Lord Almighty.'" And here's the amazing truth I want to make sure you take home today, that when we see God clearly, it results in seeing ourselves clearly. Let me repeat that. When we see God clearly, it results in seeing ourselves clearly. The inevitable response to seeing God truly is that it, and it opens our eyes to see something about ourselves. And this means especially seeing our difference from God, that we are not holy, we are not consistent, we are not full of integrity, we are not independent, and we are not self-sufficient, but we are in fact broken and sinful. Seeing God is like You've been living in a dark room and suddenly there's pure and full light and all of a sudden you can see all the cobwebs and the cracks in the wall and the carpet stains and that chair with a broken leg. This was always in the room, it was always the reality, but the light illumined it. And so too in our relationship with God, when we see God initially and then as we continue on in seeing God, then we see ourselves fully as sinful and broken and distinct from God. That's what happens at conversion. Especially those of you who were converted as an adult, and maybe if it wasn't that long ago, you still remember that there was a moment where you did not even understand. You thought you did. And that's maybe some of where we are today. You think you know what's going on, but once you saw God for the first time, then you saw yourself in a way you had never done. And that is a scary moment. In fact, it's not very good when we see God and then we see ourselves. And if you haven't seen yourself in that way, then I, I suggest to you that you haven't really seen God. Because when we see God, that realization leads us to actually despair because we see how different we are from him, that we are sinful, unclean, and inconsistent. And that would be terrible news if that's how our story ended. But look at how it ends in the last verses, beginning of verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So th this is... 
such an odd moment in the story. I mean, this is so unexpected, and it's uncomfortable even. The idea of, like, you, you, we're kind of used to from the Old Testament, the idea of blood sacrifices or forgiveness of sins and kind of as a, in debt language being covered or something. But this uses an image that is probably unique to any place in the Bible, the idea of a hot coal being taken from the altar of God and put on someone's lips. It's not a very pleasant image. And whenever I read this, I cannot avoid what has become an, an important story in Pennington family lore. That for many years, we spent our summers in, in uh, Florida teaching for Camp's Crusade. And so we would often be going out to eat six little kids all in the van. And the one thing that probably causes me the most emotional distress is a drive through like I just melt at a drive-thru because all the kids needing different things and wanting different things. And when I lose, probably the number place, number one place I lose my patience is trying to figure out what everybody wants to eat. That is like super stressful. I just kind of, it just destroys me. And I remember so many of these times, and I remember one of these times so clearly that everybody wanted something different to eat. And I finally just said, probably very grouchily, all right, we're just going to Chipotle. You're gonna have to deal with it. I don't care if you don't like it or not. And so there we are sitting in the van eating. And then we hear this one kid who remained unnamed, back in the back, crying furiously and, and saying how much his lips hurt because it had burned them, the, the, the Chipotle, like in a spicy sense. Now, I'm sure, so from that, that time on, we called them Isaiah tacos. So whenever we think of Chipotle, we think of them as Isaiah tacos. I'm sure that I did not respond as gracious as I could have and should have looking back. This is why grandparents are so much nicer than parents. I'm starting to see that now as I'm getting a little older. I'm sure I would have been a lot more gracious and compassionate today than I was then. But it just so strikes me that this is such a weird image, the idea of being burned on the lips. But for Isaiah, it doesn't mean spicy. It means cleansing. It is a cleansing fire. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And God says, I will cleanse you by putting this coal from this burning coal from the altar onto your lips. And notice those words that it is guilt covered and removed atonement, gone away. Guilt and shame and the, and the penalty of the sins gone away. So it turns out that the holy Lord that he has seen is also the gracious Lord. It doesn't have to be that way. We, you would not expect that even. But the holy, high, and exalted Lord is also the gracious Lord. So Isaiah come, goes from being destroyed, woe is me, seeing his own sinfulness, to being completely forgiven and commissioned to go and be God's mouthpiece. It is an amazing story, an amazing moment that we shouldn't take for granted this revelation of who God is for us. So the question is, what does this have to do with Advent and Christmas? I mean, maybe you're here visiting and thinking, I came, I want to hear the Christmas story. It's fine. Come on, New Year's, on Christmas Eve, you'll hear the Christmas story then as well. But as we trace this vision from Isaiah into the New Testament, there are a lot of places we could land. In fact, one of them is in the Christmas story. I don't know if you've considered how similar the story is there, that you have these angels singing and proclaiming what is true of God. And that message is that God is giving peace to the sinful world, the rebellious world. He's going to give peace. And then he commissions those to go and be witnesses. You could certainly see the connection there. But I want us to land for just a very brief moment in one of my very favorite stories in the Gospels that I think is clearly meant 
we're meant to think of Isaiah 6 when we read it. And it comes from just a little bit, not too far after Luke 2 and Luke chapter 5. Let me just read the story for you from Luke chapter 5 and have your ears open to what God is saying. So it says, one day Jesus, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats and the one belonging to Simon and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, when he had finished speaking, so sometime later probably, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, Simon, he's the professional fisherman here. He knows you don't catch fish at this time of day. He says, master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And so when they had done so, they caught such a large catch of fish, a number of fish, that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that the boats began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. So there's so many wonderful things in the story. We don't have time to look at all of them. But this morning, I just want you to see how beautifully this connects with Isaiah 6. Do you see it? We have the exact same sequence of events with Peter taking the place of Isaiah and Jesus as the Lord. Through the miracle of this catch of fish that was amazing, Peter, who had already met Jesus, Jesus had already been in his, in his house, he'd healed his mother-in-law. Peter knew that Jesus was a miracle worker of some sort and some kind of great teacher, but it is through this miracle of the catch of fish that he actually begins to see who Jesus really is, that he's more than just a powerful man, that he is the divine Lord. And the result of this, do you see the same pattern? Once he sees that he's in the presence of the Lord, the result is that he sees himself properly that he is sinful and broken, and he says, woe is me, depart from me. And then do you see the exact same response from the Lord? Forgiveness and the calling to follow. This, these stories rhyme with each other because this is God's pattern. This is God's way. The holy God reveals himself to sinful humanity, not as a power play or to flex on us or destroy us, but to invite us to life. The process of God revealing himself to us is painful because when the light is turned on, when we see God truly, then we do see ourselves differently and it hurts. Isaiah, Peter, and a billion other people have had this experience and it's painful and scary. But this is the beauty and the power and the good news of the gospel, that God is revealing himself to us so that we can see ourselves properly and own that so that we can know then his grace and forgiveness and transformation. That is the pattern. That is the way God reveals we see ourselves, we find his grace. It's true in the Old Testament, true in the New Testament, true in 2020. So what does this mean for you and me as we head toward Christmas? Have you ever thought about how 
nativity scenes are set up, they always have a center. Everyone's not just sort of looking at random things. Everyone in a nativity scene is all the eyes are pointed toward the middle and the gaze is intently right there. We are being invited at Christmas to gaze at God in the flesh, to see God. Christmas is an invitation to slow down and see God. But when we really do see God in his distinctness, his holiness, his purity, his goodness, that again makes us see ourselves that we are not like this. Again, we see that we're inconsistent. We see that we're sinful and hurtful. We're good sometimes, and, but a lot of times not so much. We're arrogant, we're self-promoting, we're defensive, we're grouchy. And, and Christmas time is a time where our lives, our, our normal schedules are disrupted and we're, we're with family a lot more. And we're also maybe have a lot of time to reflect that we don't usually have. We spend so much of our time keeping busy and escaping and keeping ourselves entertained because when you start to look inside and see what's really going on, it's not pretty. And so at Christmas time, a lot of times, even though it's supposed to be this time of joy and it is, we often become aware of ourselves in a way that is not pleasant precisely because of the disruption to our schedule. This is a certain season of our lives. Again, we're, we're in close quarters with, with family. Maybe, you know, this year we've kind of been in close quarters more, but I think we especially see it. We're not working and we're, we're together. And at those moments of self-revelation, it can be very dark. Maybe you saw the meme I saw this week that was really funny. It says, husbands be like, I'm going to nap in this room that everyone uses and then be grumpy when everyone uses it. I've been guilty of that, right? When we are in close quarters with each other, we begin to see our brokenness. We see our failures. We see things that we've done in the past that we're now bearing fruit. We may feel stress about money and preparations. We, we see bickering and fighting among our children, young and old. And that's painful to see about ourselves. And it's very difficult to acknowledge honestly and humbly our own brokenness because it's hard to face the shame and the embarrassment of our own sinfulness. And again, we will do everything we can to not face this, either by acting like everything's fine, smiling all the time, everything's fine, great, or by blaming others for our sin and our grouchiness. So Christmas time, like what we're into this week, can be very discouraging because of the very fact that we begin to see ourselves as we really are. But what if there was someone who saw all that is true about you and who gave you space to be completely honest about how broken you are and then with all of a whole heart smiled and embraced you and said, that is true, but I love you and I accept you, I forgive you, I cover that sin and now come and follow me and be transformed. Friends, this is what we are celebrating at Christmas, that the 
triple holy God who is transcendent is also eminent. In fact, he is incarnate. He has become in the flesh. And as we center our gaze on him at Christmas, then we can be honest about seeing ourselves, but then we can remember that his way is a way of forgiveness. That brokenness plus grace gives us freedom. That as we look upon God, then we can be honest with ourselves precisely because when God reveals himself, he does so to give us life. The reason Christmas is a time of joy is because of this truth that the holy and transcendent God is also gracious and eminent for you in Jesus Christ. And we're celebrating that. And so I invite you, Not only to think about all the other joys, but to be honest with who you are and then to turn your gaze upon the Lord, the one who has become incarnate, and remember that he looks upon you with great forgiveness and grace and the ability to transform you. That is the great hope of Christmas. And we end each service with with these symbols that are such a beautiful reminder, again, of the transcendent God who is holy coming into flesh and saying, this is my flesh, my body that I'm willing to break for you. This is my blood that I am willing to have poured out for you so that you can know me not just as separate and holy, but as gracious and loving and faithful. So I'm going to pray. The musicians are going to come forward. Partake of this, these symbols, remembering today that they are a picture of God's greatness and his grace towards you. And go into this week mindful of yourself and mindful of God's love and grace towards you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.